Apple operating systems, such as iOS, are closed source. This closed source nature gives Apple an extremely successful business model and a very different software developer ecosystem than open source Linux-based systems. Since Linux is open source, the information on how to manipulate the system at a low level is very public. The lack of information about low-level programming in Apple operating systems has led to a large community of jailbreaking, where people try to reverse engineer how the closed-source systems function. In today's episode, Maxime Bazali joins the show to describe how he reverse-engineered an Apple Watch. It's a complex security challenge to jailbreak an Apple Watch, as Maxim describes in great detail. Max is a security researcher at Lookout, a mobile security company, so he is well-equipped to describe the internal security details of the Apple Watch. Before we get started, I want to announce that we're hiring a creative operations lead. If you are an excellent communicator, please check out our job posting for creative operations at softwareengineeringdaily.com jobs. This is a great job for someone who just graduated a coding boot camp or someone with a background in the arts who is making their way into technology. If you want to be creative and you want to learn about engineering, check it out at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. Max Bazzale, you a security researcher at Lookout. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to have a chance to speak here today. Yeah, so I saw your video at DEF CON, which was about jailbreaking an Apple Watch. And I want to talk through that as well as talk through jailbreaking and mobile security more broadly. Let's start with the topic of jailbreaking. What is jailbreaking? So basically, jailbreaking is a process of hacking a device to remove device-specific restrictions. If we are talking about like Apple Watch or any other Apple device, so it's a process to disable some of the software restrictions applied by Apple to run maybe like unsigned code or to modify a system to install maybe like some new skins to the system and so on. And usually jailbreak process requires software vulnerabilities to use, a way to like escalate privileges and bypass some of the system security mechanisms. I would say like jailbreaking is a pretty interesting target for security researchers because after jailbreaking, our security researchers get a full access to a file system which allows them to explore how the system works. Mm-hmm. Why would you want to jailbreak an Apple Watch specifically? Well, I would say that first thing I would like to prove that it's real, that it, it can happen, because no one do it before publicly. And second thing, I would like to understand how the watch OS works, how the watch OS system works, what I can do with that, how it's similar to iOS and so on. So it was like a fun project for me and then it goes to something bigger like a jailbreak and so an apple watch is a file system it's an operating system how is it different than hacking some other computer like my desktop computer first of all watches basically runs the same system as uh, iphones do it's like slightly modified version of ios and they share the same kernel and uh, watches share the same security restrictions as well. So the main difference between hacking like regular computer or Mac is 
amount of efforts Apple put to protect the operating system, which I mean you cannot easily run any application that you want. All the code that is run in the system should be vetted by Apple or should, should be approved by Apple. Or even if you can run uh, code on a system, it will be pretty limited by application sandbox, which like isolate each application from each other to make spying or like data leaking impossible. So it's like pretty challenging task, uh, and it's it differ from uh, nowadays operating system by just adding more security layers. Now, if you could jailbreak an Apple Watch, what would you be able to run on it? What kind of software did you have in mind that you could potentially run on this watch if you were able to hack it open? First of all, it was interesting for me from a security researcher point of view. I want to understand how the system works. But basically, after jailbreaking, I can can run any uh, open-sourced code on it. This includes like servers, this includes proxies, that includes debuggers, that includes, I don't know, like even like spyware and so on and so on. So for me, it was like more like a research project that I just want to prove that I can get, uh, you know, like a remote access to my watch and run any code I want on my watch. Like, for example, like a server or so. Is there a, a large community of people online who jailbreak devices on a regular basis and share strategies around how to do jailbreaking? Yeah, I would say that jailbreaking community is pretty strong. And I would say it's it's old, starting from the very first days of iOS releases. Like, community was started around the tweaks, which some of the modifications that you can apply to a system to change its behavior. For example, some cool animation, maybe some uh, additional features in a in a calls or SMS or so. So it was basically built around the tweaks. And later on, security researchers start using jailbreaks as well as their way to find new security vulnerabilities in a system. One of the things is the system is so closed, like only a small part of a kernel is open sourced. Everything else is closed sourced. And to find the security vulnerabilities, you first need to get access to a system. Device creators like Apple, are they trying to prevent jailbreaking? Do they put mechanisms in place to try to discourage people from doing that or prevent people from doing that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So because that's their business and that's the security of a device and that's the security of their customers. So they do pretty much everything to prevent current jailbreaks and protect from future jailbreaks by, I would say, applying the new security mitigations in software and as well as in in hardware, which make all the future jailbreaks way harder. I would say that now amount of efforts that you need to put to make a jailbreak, for example, now and like four years earlier, it's like, it tries significantly. So there is like much more things that you need to bypass now. And the strategy that we're going to go through in terms of how you jailbroke the Apple Watch this is not something that you could have done remotely, right? This was something that you had to have access to the direct hardware in order to jailbreak it. Well, that's, that's a good question. I would say this kind of attack is possible remotely. The way why I did not use the remote approach is that the version of WatchOS that I was playing with did not support the browser or like the WebKit in that time. And other interfaces that allow any remote access was pretty limited. So in the newer version of WatchOS, it is possible to interact with a browser and that's pretty good attack vector. 
Yeah, in my attack, I was using application-based approach, which I basically install one of the applications to the Apple Watch. It was like approved by, by Apple, and this is how I start my, my attack. The objective of your jailbreaking is to get into the kernel, the operating system kernel. Remind the audience what the operating system kernel is. Basically, it's a core of a computer operating system, and it gets a complete control of everything in the system. For a security purpose, it's running in a separate address space uh, in a private privileged environment. And basically, kernel do all the low-level tasks in the system, like all the file system access, network access, memory management, process separation, and so on and so on. So each time the process trying to read a file, it goes like reroute it to a kernel and kernel basically can make a decision to read the file or like to deny access to a file. So any like low level operation, they route it in a kernel. And kernel provides some set of APIs that can be used uh, by user mode processes to, to interact with. Your attack vector was an application extension. You considered several different attack vectors. Why did you go with the application extension? What is an application extension? I would make a brief overview of possible attack vectors in, in that time it was available. So as we talk a little bit about remote attacks, the remote attack was an option or a physical attack was an option. Physical attack basically require a physical access to a device and where we can try to interact with the device using a special like diagnostic port that, that I found on a, on a watch. Problem with the physical approach is that we need to know very well how the boot process in the device is working, as well as know how the, how the diagnostic port interact with the hub. Other problem is that Apple use their own formats as well as their, their own connectors type for almost everything, which means that I need to like design my own connector to interact with the diagnostic port. So it was not, not a good option for me. So that's, that's why I was switched to remote attacks. And I found there are a, a few possibilities of that, uh, like uh, there is interaction between a phone and a watch. So there's maybe a good target uh, there. And later on, I found that Apple support programs that call application extensions to be running on a watch and yeah that, that's a pretty good target. So the application extension is basically a program that is bundled in iOS application and most of the time it's used as a minion to iOS application basically to show some of the notification on Apple Watch or so. Well but it can be used as to send data as well. It can contain some logic and send data back to a phone. For example, uh, when you exercise in a gym, your watch can send data back to a phone and phone gonna make some decisions based on it. Long story short, the application extension, basically it's, it's a program and it's running native code. And as it's running the native code, it's, it's always good for attacker that I can put my own code there and try to interact with the system. Other thing is, uh, as application extension is a part of iOS bundle package, it got signed by Apple, which means I get like Apple approval of running this application extension on the watch. So I don't need to care about code signing and restrictions. So th this code is all already like, approved by, by Apple. 
the significance of code signing. Can you explain that? What is code signing? That's the security approach that uses in a modern operating system. The idea behind it that only signed code can be executed in a system, which means only the code that was checked before or uh, approved by a vendor, in this case is Apple. For example, the App Store, the way how the users download applications. So programmers upload their applications to Apple. Apple check that uh, the application is not doing any malicious behavior or, or so on. And then say like, okay, it's, it's okay to publish it in App Store. And they basically sign this application with the Apple certificate. That's the like, basic idea behind it. And all the Apple operating systems, they now enforce that code that uh, want to be run it in a system, that it should be code signed. It should be code signed and it should be code signed by Apple. Now, how can you get around that? Because if your code that is going to potentially get into the kernel, leak the kernel base, do a kernel dump, like if your code is going to be doing that, it's not going to be signed, right? Like you, you're only going to be able to get signed if you interface with Apple, right? If you get the Apple code signing function done on your code. How do you get around the code signing? Yeah, that's, there are a few approaches. One of them is to basically find software vulnerability to bypass the code signing checks. It was used like multiple times in the jailbreaks. And other like more easier approach is to uh, use a development certificate to sign your code. So basically development certificate is a certificate issued by Apple. It's like a personal cert- certificate that's given to a developer or to like organization. But it allows you to sign code with some limitations. So the code that you sign in, it can be run it only on a few devices that you basically specify into a uh, developer portal. So in other words, if I get like 10 test devices, I can specify the device serial numbers in a developer portal and Apple gonna grant me a certificate that I can use to sign a code to run into devices. Okay, to go back to the objective, you needed to leak the kernel base and do a kernel dump. What is a kernel dump? Why did you need to do these kernel-related operations? A step back on... a how the modern operating system works uh, and how the security mitigation works. The kernel is, as it's like so significant part of a system, it run all the low level uh, operations as well as it enforce all the security restrictions like sandboxing, like uh, code signing and so on and so on. So to be able to jailbreak a device, uh, we need to get kernel modification. Somehow we need to escalate the privileges and bypass some of the security measures to write to a kernel memory. The problem here is that kernel address in a memory is randomized each time. Each time the device is booted, it is loaded into a different address. It is one of the security mitigations called uh, address space layout randomization. And basically it's a way how to prevent uh, exploitation, in this case kernel exploitation. So. In a way to write something to a kernel, we need to know where the kernel is located in the memory. And th- that was my very first task. As I get the code execution uh, with the help of uh, application extension, now I use one of the vulnerabilities to understand where the kernel is located in the memory. To clarify where we are so far, you developed an application extension and that application extension allowed you 
direct access to the kernel wherever the kernel was in that memory space? Uh, not, not that easy, unfortunately. So this application extension allow me to run native code. And I found one of the security vulnerabilities in the interface that can be that, that interacted with the kernel, which allow me to like run this code into sandbox at environment, which means this API call was not prevented by sandbox. But it was powerful enough and contained a software vulnerability that allowed me to leak the address in a kernel memory. So I still don't have a access to a kernel memory, but I know where the kernel is located. But because it's randomized every time upon startup, oh, okay, so you can just run this application extension every time and then locate where the kernel is sitting in memory each time. Yeah, exactly. So th- that was the point of this type of bugs. It's called the infoleaks. Just because the kernel will be kernel address will be randomized each time device reboots, we need to each time like calculate the kernel address in the memory. And for this purpose, the usually the software vulnerabilities get used that can us help to leak where the kernel is located. After you discover where the kernel is located using that application extension and that interface vulnerability in the application extension, what can you do? What can you do once you know where the kernel is in memory? Yeah, so now I know where the kernel is in memory, but I still don't have access to read or write to a kernel memory. I just know where it's located. And it was like stage two of uh, my exploit. I know, uh, well, I found other uh, vulnerability in a kernel, which allow me to read the kernel data. The problem was that for construct the exploit for this vulnerability, I need to know some data in a kernel. And it's like chicken and egg problem. To read the kernel, you need to know something that it is in a kernel and you cannot read it until you found uh, a way to read the kernel memory. So it was it was a problem. So the way how I want to exploit and read the kernel memory, it required me to know some of the information about the kernel. And I will start le- looking for ways how I can leak some of the code from, from a kernel. Because if you could dump the kernel, then you could understand what's going on in there, how it's laid out in memory. And then if you can reverse engineer how it's laid out in memory, that then you, maybe you can potentially reverse engineer how to read and write to that space. Yeah, exactly. So if I can dump a kernel, I can analyze it. I can an- understand some of the like constants in a kernel and I can understand where the code where the code is located and how I can reuse the code that is already in a kernel memory to do the stuff that I want. For example, read anywhere or write anywhere. So, so the kernel, the representation in memory is just a set of data structures, right? It's, it's kernel structs. And just like, you know, anybody who's developed object-oriented software deals with objects or structures, the kernel, the operating system kernel has its own set of structures that are represented in memory. Can you describe a little bit more how the object system of a kernel exists in memory? And, and, you know, can you look at it? Is it in a way that you can actually recognize from human readable format? So the kernel basically contains a code section, which is like the compiled code. 
and it contains the data section where the, all the variables are stored, the variables that can be modified uh, during the uh, code execution. And there is basically the kernel memory called like a heap. So the heap is where the kernel allocate the structures, where the kernel allocate some data that is used, for example, each time the process is uh, running in a, in a system, the kernel allocate some of the data on, on the kernel heap. And before creating an exploit, I need to understand how the kernel works. The problem was that watch.is kernel was different from any kernels I've seen before, like iOS or macOS. And the layout of data, layout of some of the structures was different that I've seen on, on iOS or macOS, which mean that I need to play some kind of like cat and mouse game and guess what kind of data is it, like allocating the new memory chunk or running the new process and check how the kernel memory was changed to understand where it's where it's located and how it's uh, you know like distributed over the kernel memory. This is called kernel symbolication, right? Similar thing. One quick remark: how we get the kernel memory? As I say, that I did not. Uh, I know where the kernel is located in the memory, but I still don't have a powerful that powerful. It's called a primitive that powerful way to read the kernel memory. And to read it, I need to know some part of a kernel. And I use one of the tricks that I found a way to crash a system. I found a way to reboot a device and crash a kernel. But luckily, when the kernel crashed, it saved the system state in a called the crash dump. And the crash dump contain values of the CPU registers. And some of these CPU registers is what I need to leak like four bytes of the kernel in a time. So I was keep crashing a kernel, read the crash dumps, read four bytes, and then repeat the process. It's take around like two weeks, but I get like around, I think it was 700 bytes of a kernel, which was enough for me to uh, construct my exploit. So I get enough data click it by these crash dumps to construct the second stage of the exploit which allow me to easily read anywhere in a kernel so i don't have this problem anymore so just to be clear you hacked together some series of scripts that were just going to run repeatedly to load up your apple watch locate the kernel in memory and then crash it to emit uh what do you say four bytes per crash and then you ran that for two weeks which gave you enough of the kernel's state, although those were those, each time was a different. It was a different state, right? I mean, you had to. I guess you had to be rebooting it under the exact same circumstances, so that you had a somewhat consistent picture of what it looks like. Yeah. So the here's how the processes look like. Unfortunately, cannot directly install applications on a watch. So I basically construct my application extension that. The first step is doing it is leaking uh, where the kernel is located in a the memory. Then it is trying to uh, crush a kernel by a specific address. So I now I know where the kernel is located, and I need to leak the uh, values of the some of the memory address. So I put this memory address in one function, and this function will uh, interpret this address incorrectly and basically crush a kernel. But that leaked like four bytes at time. 
So the process looks like you install application on a phone, the phone synchronize it with a watch, watch get crashed, you wait until watch waked up, basically reboot a system, then you keep nagging and keep waiting until the watch will synchronize the crash dump with the phone, then you need to jailbreak a phone and copy this uh, crash dump to your Mac then change the address like plus four bytes and repeat all the thing. So that's why it takes so long. Mm. And some of these steps I can automate, like recompile an application each time and so on. But some of the steps I didn't find a good way to automate it. For example, I need to wait until the Apple Watch get rebooted and until it make a connection between a phone and a watch to download the crash dumps back. And sometimes it was unpredictable. I mean, it sometimes take like two minutes uh, until the watch will be rebooted. Sometimes it take more. So yeah, it was it was challenging, and it, that's why it take like so long. But like finally, after like weeks of this process, I get I get what I want. Which was, which was seven hundred bytes of a kernel, and this allow me to construct the next ex- uh, step of the exploit, which will be use it in the same application extension, but instead of crashing a kernel, now it can use internal constants that I just leaked to read uh, anywhere from a kernel memory. Anywhere and basically like write anywhere. So it was basically prerequisition to complete kernel memory read and write. And this allowed me to read now the whole kernel, which in that time was around uh, I think it was 16 megabytes of data in a watchOS, which means if, if I was dumping it by four bytes, it can take just ages to dump 16 megabytes. I see. So you just you just needed to figure out enough information to be able to do a read over the kernel itself. Like, describe how do you extrapolate 700 bytes to understanding how the address space is laid out and being able to read it? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I found a vulnerability in in a kernel, in a code that doing serialization, which means, for example, you can send a dictionary with an object, like strings, like arrays, like booleans. And during the serialization object, the kernel can go to different execution flow, like for sure not not checked by, by initial developers. So long story short, I found a way if I construct the string object and if I know where the kernel is located in the memory, I can say that the string uh, start address is a kernel start address and basically try to read the whole kernel as a one, one, one long string. That was my idea. But to achieve that, I need some of the constants from a kernel to basically construct this like C++-based string object. So to give you more context, these objects there exist in a kernel space. But from a user space, you can describe which objects you want to allocate in a kernel. And you can describe that you want to allocate in a kernel space, you want to allocate a string object, and here is the properties of this object. Like the starting address is this, and the length of the object is this, and so on. So by constructing an object that points to a beginning of the kernel, and if we know the raw kernel size, we can try to read the kernel to user space. And being able to read it, does that mean you, you also know how to write 
to the kernel or or this is all about wanting to set up read and write primitives because if you can read and write to the kernel you basically have full control over the system you can do anything but if you so once you had figured out the mapping to be able to read the kernel does that also give you the ability to write to it no but it depends on the vulnerability you get my vulnerability was pretty powerful which allowed me to execute a code in a kernel space again by using this like fake string object but if i can execute a code i can execute some parts of the kernel for example like some assembly instructions that allow me to read or even like write to a kernel memory so answering your question it depends on how powerful uh, your vulnerability is like mine was pretty powerful, which allowed me to read and write and even execute just in, in, in one vulnerability. Some of the vulnerabilities, they are limited that you can only read. For example, when I was like crashing a kernel, it allowed me only like leak or read like four bytes at a time, but not to write. So in this case, you, you need additional vulnerability to allow you to write. With the Apple Watch, you're typically in a sandbox mode the developers in a sandbox mode there's a there's a limited set of things that you can do are we beyond the point where you're constrained by the sandbox or or does the sandbox still limit you once you have this read write primitive idea set up yeah so yeah sandbox is pretty powerful mechanism to prevent exploitation luckily the software vulnerability that i found it was not uh, restricted by sandbox which mean from my application extension, I can run this powerful API that can interact with the kernel and it was not protected by a sandbox. Okay. So yeah, this kind of vulnerabilities, they are pretty rare, but yeah, they exist. Uh, in other case, if I don't have this powerful vulnerability, I need additional vulnerability to uh, get out of sandbox, to, like, to find a way how to, for example, interact with APIs that I need or basically like escalate my privileges to not be enforced by sandbox restrictions. So once you have read-write capability in the kernel, what does that let you do? Yeah, so basically, as I say, um, most of the security restrictions, they are located in a kernel, like uh, code signing enforcement, the sandbox uh, in cell itself is uh, just a driver in a kernel, all other things that prevent us to, for example, spawn or like launch the new processes in a system or so. They're all, all these checks are in a kernel. So when I get the read-write primitives to a kernel memory, I can do hot patching on the fly. So basically uh, modifying kernel code when the kernel is running. This is what I've done. So I know where the kernel is located in the memory. I read the whole kernel to a user mode so I can disassemble it. I can find the functions in a kernel that I need to modify and I start to do my patches in the in in memory just by changing the uh, assembly instructions, basically. So you set up read-write primitives, you disable security protections on the watch, and then you can set up SSH. If you get SSH set up, you've effectively jailbroken the watch. So wh why is that? Why was the goal to set up an SSH connection? Why is that as good as having totally jailbroken and having control over the whole device? Yeah, basically, so SSH is a part of a jailbreak process. So after you disable the security features of a system, like by patching a kernel, 
you need to provide some easy interface to interact with the system. Because installing application extension each time to run your code is maybe not, not the best thing. And SSH looks like a pretty good candidate that you can just uh, make a connection directly to your watch and uh, upload any file you want, any executable you want, run it, and so on. So basically you get an um, interactive console with your watch and yeah, with full access to a file system, with full access to a memory and so on. You can do anything. What frictions did you encounter when you were trying to create that SSH connection? That was the tricky part. So first of all, I was following the same steps as I was doing on iOS before uh, by disabling this, uh, the restrictions in the kernel. And I was surprised that it was not enough. So in watchOS, it was much more restrictions in a kernel uh, that prevents you to run any kind of like SSH client on a watch, which makes sense because Apple designed it watch to not interact with uh, network, only use the iPhones for, for this purpose. So yeah, it, it required me additional patches in the kernel to even run the SSH connection. And later on, I found that there is no good connection point to a watch, as watch is interacting only with iPhone and it is interacting only with a Bluetooth. And it was, it was a challenge how, how I can run my SSH connection over the Bluetooth. So I started looking for ways what, what we can do with that. Yeah, so you needed to create a Bluetooth connection with the Apple Watch using an iPhone in order to get this SSH connection running. That's something I didn't completely understand. Can you explain that in more detail? Sure. So the watch interacts with outer world only uh, by using an iPhone. So watch cannot interact with any other device except the iPhone that is paired with, which means all the information that uh, watch retrieve, for example, even like application extension, it is synchronized from a phone using the Bluetooth connection. So which means if I want to, for example, directly connect from my Mac to a watch, there is no easy way to do it. So I need to somehow connect to my phone and from a phone I can connect to a watch. Again, because a phone using as a gateway to, to a watch. Got it. So I think we're at the point where you have achieved the jailbreak. So did you actually do anything once you had the watch jailbroken or mission accomplished? Well, yeah, the, the first thing I just run the SSH connection and like prove that, that it works, that I can run now any unsigned code on this tiny device. And I start recompiling the open source uh, software for uh, this uh, watch OS specific architecture as it, it is running on its own chip and you cannot just reuse the software. You need to like re recompile it for a watch, but it's doable. So I start recompiling the command line tools like, I don't know, like Chmode and uh, like LS, like uh, move, like copy and these kind of things to give some of the capabilities to a newly jailbroken Apple Watch system. And I've recompiled some of the Python interpreters, so you can run Python on it, you can run servers on it, on a watch, you can even connect, remove some of the limitations in the kernel. And if you connect your watch to Wi-Fi, you can even talk with uh, outer world. So basically you can browse websites uh, using your Apple Watch after, after jailbreak. And yeah, of course you can 
apply any modifications to a system, apply your own, I don't know, like bot screens, change the UI and so on and so on. But for me, it was that I can run any code on it. So basically anything I want. So this talk took place at DEF CON, which is a security conference. What was the reception to the talk? Uh, I would say it was pretty good as it was the first public Apple Watch jailbreak and previously nobody take that seriously how much information Apple Watch know about the user. For example, like all the messages, all the emails, all the GPS coordinates, all like photos, music, like health information, so on. So there's a lot of privacy on a watch. And yeah, as soon as... uh, jailbreak get achieved it raise more questions about like how how we protect our data and yeah that's even hacking this small device still can be pretty dangerous in a case of like data leaking user data leaking and yeah i get a lot of questions from uh, security researchers how i achieved this uh, what were the challenges and i made a pretty detailed presentation about the vulnerabilities that i use and how i exploit them so I would say it was a good starting point for future watchOS research for uh, security researchers. So they can now understand how the system is working, what are the limitations, what are the security restrictions, what are the possible attack vectors. And I would say f- for a future, it's like more helpful to find more vulnerabilities in the system, report them and make the software more secure. You work at Lookout. Lookout is a company that builds mobile security products for organizations. What do you do at Lookout? What are the core Lookout products? Well, we do the set of products starting from a mobile protection when it's the the software that it checks for possible malware on your device, the check for possible vulnerabilities on your device, that is checking for is the network secure and insecure, it is checking for, for example, if you're trying to open the phishing site and so on. My role in Lookout is like is a research. So I'm looking for a new type of attacks on a mobile phones. I'm looking for a new type of attacks to bypass the security mitigations and sometimes like reverse engineering how the system works to find a way how we can interact with the system. So I would say it's like broad set of tasks that, that I'm doing. I think a lot of people have a perception that the threat vectors in an organization, particularly like social engineering related vectors, which I know are, are a lot of things that come into an organization these days. I think people have a perception that if they open these social engineering links and things on their mobile device, it's not as big of an issue. But like the real concern is people opening things on their laptop or on their desktop device. How much truth is there to that idea? Like how vulnerable in a, your typical enterprise are mobile devices to the typical attack vectors? Well, I would say that as mobile device, they're under the hood is pretty much the same operating systems. They're like much more protected than the desktops, but still it's operating system with its weak spots and, and limitations. And I would say with the rise of like bring your own device, I think it's much more like workers use their mobile device to use the work email, to even store some sensitive information and so on. So I would say 
it's not gonna replace the desktops but it's pretty good additional attack vector because you store the same documents on a mobile device and as soon as one mobile device will be compromised attacker can get access to internal network of, of an organization or access to uh, internal emails and so on it's harder than on desktop but still it's an attack vector Okay, well, Max, it's been really great talking to you about jailbreaking Apple Watch, and I can see from the perspective of somebody that does mobile security for a living why this would be something that's that's on your mind. I mean, a, an Apple Watch is just another mobile device and just another computer, as you've explained in gratuitous detail, and you've got to be aware of the security vectors that device could be subject to. So if nothing else, then you probably learned about some vulnerabilities in the Apple Watch that Lookout might have to secure against in the future. Yeah, and for our listeners, if if they want to like go like deeper into vulnerabilities, I think we can provide a link to a white paper with a very detailed explanation how they can reproduce this kind of attack on their watch. Sure, happy to do that. Okay, well, Max, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Jeffrey. It was pretty good to talk. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Wow.